Welcome to the Ethnos New Brunswick podcast. We're so glad you're joining us. Ethnos is a new organization looking to join in the holistic, community-transforming work happening in Highland Park and New Brunswick. Part of that includes thinking about the spiritual health and vitality of our community. Each week, our gathering is meant to give our community a safe and helpful place for that. Today's episode, Pain, is the second part of our series called Meaningless, Finding More in Life's Complexity, with the conversation being led by Professor Jim Hart. Today is a unique day where we are highlighting our special relationship with the Rutgers School of Social Work. And uh, we're also in the beginning of a series that we're calling Meaninglessness. And uh, it's a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And today is a unique Sunday because we are talking about the reality and the issue of pain. It's something that this book in the Bible and Jesus' scriptures talks about a lot, uh, but it's also something that we go through a lot. And we thought it would just be so awesome if we could have somebody right here in our community who is an expert, in a sense, in this area of pain and trauma come and share with us uh, their journey and their understanding and their insights. Uh, Some of you who are connected with the School of Social Work know Professor Jim Hart. Uh, Jim Hart has been a professor there for some some time. I think he teaches about five of the classes there right now for the School of Social Work. But what you may not know is that Jim Hart is also a pastor in our community as well. He's one of the pastors at Abundant Life with Bishop George Seawright. And so uh, Jim, our Professor Hart, has a lot of insight, I think, that will be truly a blessing for us today as we go through this series. And so let's invite up Jim and uh, give him a hand, if you will. And he's definitely representing Rutgers today. Look at this guy, man. This is, this is serious. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Pastor Yukon. I appreciate it very, very much. This is really, really cool in that you meet at Stress Factory. I told my wife, I have to resist the urge to tell a joke right now (laughs) since I'm right at Stress Factory. But it's also really neat because this might be the most diverse, multicultural crowd I have ever preached to. You see, at Abundant Life, I love Abundant Life. I've been there since 1997, so do the math. It's over 20 years. Abundant Life is predominantly African-American, a growing Hispanic population, then like me and like two other white people. So... (laughs) If you come to Abundant Life and you ask to see Pastor Jim, everybody knows who I am. And so I'm either preaching in all black settings, which is fine, or all white settings, which is also fine. So this is a wonderful experience for me to have a multicultural experience. Particularly for me personally, Pastor Yukon did not uh, mention this, but my wife is African-American. Her family is actually from Nigeria. Her name is Yatunde, Yatunde. And so we have three boys, three biracial boys, Samuel, Daniel, and Gabriel. And um, my wife is with them right now. Hopefully, uh, the boys are not giving her the business. Hopefully, they are cooperating and everything is fine. But I certainly want to acknowledge her. My wife has been a wonderful support uh, for me. I tell people, as a preacher, it's easy to preach about heaven when you've got an angel by your side. You can use that one later. But I certainly want to thank Pastor Yukon for giving me the opportunity to be here with all of you. And I certainly want to thank Bishop Seawright for allowing me to get here. I'm sorry for coming late. Obviously, we're in our service and all the different responsibilities I have to get to. But uh, let's move forward. God, let's pray. God, we are certainly grateful and thankful 
for another opportunity to be in your presence. God, we ask that you give us strength to our physical bodies. You give us peace in our minds, a calm in our spirit, so we can hear what you have to say today. Certainly pray, God, for everyone that's here. I pray that you meet every one of their needs. May you calm the storms of life. May you restore hope. May you impart encouragement. May all of us be open to receive your love, your healing, your restoration. And God, let each and every one of us know that the will that you have for our lives is going to be done in history. It's in the name that's above every name. Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. So I had a pleasure of meeting your pastor, Pastor Yukon, about, about, about a month ago or so. We met over at the Starbucks. He bought me my favorite caramel frappuccino, which was wonderful. And we got talking, and he wanted me to, to cover a variety of topics. But as we talked and as we discussed, I said, well, there's also this other thing that I do and talk about, and that is handling pain properly. And as I began to share with him what's a part of this message, he said, that's exactly what I want you to do. It's exactly what I want you to talk about. So we're going we're gonna to walk through that. Now, I also know that the culture of ethnos is that Pastor Yukon will put something out on the table, give you something to talk about, give you things to dialogue. And I, I wrestled with doing that because I understand that what I'm about to talk to you about and what we're about to walk through, it's not easy. And humanity, whether you're black, white, Asian, and Hispanic, humanity, when stuff comes up that we don't like to talk about, we like to cover up and hide. That shame rears its ugly head. And so part of me doesn't want necessarily, and I, I didn't talk to Pastor Yukon about this, but part of me doesn't want to necessarily get you talking amongst yourselves. I really just want you to listen to what I have to say. And because it's raining like cats and dogs, my kids' flag football for today got canceled. So I don't have to jet out of here. So if you would allow, Pastor Yukon, if you feel it's, it's appropriate, after I'm done talking, I will take your individual questions. And I know because we're shame-based, you can just raise your hand and say, I got a friend who has this problem, and then you can ask your question. And nobody has to know that it's your concern or your, your issue, all right? So what I usually do when I speak is I usually will take a, a portion of Scripture and walk you through that portion of Scripture, but I'm not going to do that today. Today I'm going to talk more about concepts and connect them to what the Bible has to say. You know, as a professor at Rutgers University, I get a chance to read about all the different neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, social work research that's being done. And all of that research is important and necessary, and I love reading it. But often what the research proves or shows is what the Bible has been talking about forever. That often the research doesn't disprove the existence of God, it actually just confirms the absolute truth of the Bible. And so what I'm going to talk to you about is concepts principles that are both biblically based but also backed up by what the research has to say. So let's look at how to handle pain properly. I know you all have your, your handouts. How many of you could testify, you can just raise your hand, that, that at some point in your life, emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual pain, that at some point in your life, it distracted you from the presence of God? It distracted you from the will of God. It distracted you from fulfilling your purpose. It hindered your relationships, right? We can all attest to that. You know, if I were to ask you, can somebody share or can someone be honest and say that at least one thing in my life that's happened to me has been absolutely devastating? And if I were to ask this crowd, I know every single person would have their hands raised, Right? Some of us would raise two hands, our feet. Like, there's stuff that's happened to us that we still don't understand. 
that we still don't have an answer for. And we may not until we get to glory. So, but what, what was devastating to me may be nothing compared to you, what you've been through. Right? And what's been devastating to you may be nothing to me. That's not the point. The point that it, it was devastating to you, and that's what's most important. Right? Now, I remember being a kid. I was probably, I don't know how old I was. I think I was in the third grade. And I was sitting in third grade class. And if you remember third grade, um, way back when I was in school, maybe they still do it today, in each classroom, they had the little speaker, and I heard over the, over the speaker, can you please send Jimmy Hart to the principal's office? And I thought, like, okay, what did I do now? So I get up on my seat, I go to the principal's office, and there's my mom, and she's waiting for me. And she takes me out to her car, and in her car is all of her stuff, her best friend, and my sister. What my mom was doing that day was leaving my father. And so... As a third grader, I don't understand. My mom's crying. Pam's trying to console her. Sarah's two years younger than me. And I can only think about my dad. Like, what was it going to be like when he got home and the house is empty and his wife is gone and his kids are gone? And this was before cell phones and social media and how he didn't kill her, I don't know. But that loss, that subsequent divorce and separation from my parents, and all the craziness that I saw. I love my parents, and if they're standing, sitting here today, they wouldn't mind me sharing some of the personal family history. But I remember my family arguing, my parents fighting. I remember my dad punching a hole in the wall. I remember all the craziness that went on. And that loss, that divorce was devastating to me. And it played out in my life in so many other ways that we'll talk about in just a moment. But before we talk about how to handle pain properly, we got to look at the realities of pain, and that draws you back to your handout that I gave you, right? And so it says the first one is that pain is inevitable. The reality of life is that pain is inevitable. No one's going to escape this life without experiencing pain. From birth through childhood into adolescence and into our adulthood years, pain and difficulty are a part of the human experience. Now, thankfully, they're not the totality of the human experience, but they are certainly a part of the human experience. Sometimes the pain that we experience is self-inflicted, but oftentimes the pain is inflicted upon us, right? We've been through abor- abuse, neglect, abandonment, mistreatment. Some people in the room have been raped, have been molested, have been assaulted, A lot of stuff's been done to us. The pain's been inflicted upon us. The amount of trauma and abandonment, death, divorce, as I talked about. There's so many things that have happened to us that we may not even have an answer for today. But the Bible is filled with people who have gone through pain. And to refer back to your notes, Ecclesiastes 2, verses 21 and 23, Solomon captures it well. And he says, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor on the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So pain in this life is inevitable. Point number two is that pain accumulates in us if we don't handle it. Properly. The reality of life is that things accumulate. In every area of your life, things accumulate. You're either accumulating the debt or the value, but everything in this life accumulates. You know, and I think our society has perpetuated really bad advice. 
And that bad advice is that time heals all wounds. Time does not heal all wounds. That's horrible advice. How many of you know people have been through pain like 10 years ago and still hasn't healed them? Time has passed, and maybe you get a little distance away from the event, but it does not necessarily heal you. And I think our physical pain and our emotional pain can instruct us about life. You know, physical pain and emotional pain, if left unchecked, gets worse, not better. Right? You got, a, you got an abscess tooth in a cavity, I'll give it a year. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that, right? Because we know the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. I remember uh, not this past Super Bowl when the Patriots beat the Rams and probably the worst Super Bowl I ever watched, <laughs> but the year before, my beloved Philadelphia Eagles, <laughs> here we go. Two years ago, my beloved Philadelphia Eagles were going to line up and play the New England Patriots. And about three or four days before that Super Bowl happened, before my Eagles made my dreams come true and winning that Super Bowl, I woke up with this tremendous pain in my knee, in my left knee. It felt like somebody had taken a baseball bat and beat on it all night long. It was swollen. It was painful. I couldn't walk. What I had was bursitis in my knee. Now, if you've ever had bursitis, you know how painful it is. But see, you just don't wake up one morning with bursitis. See, I had been doing some things that, are, that many of us do. I had been running in shoes that were really worn out. And oftentimes we delay and going to get stuff because we don't feel like going to the mall. We don't feel like going shopping. And so I just kept running in these worn out running shoes. Well, that developed a callus on my left foot. Now, the smart person would say, and I'm not very smart, the smart person would say, let me stop running until the callus heals. Or smarter, just go buy new running shoes. No, I just kept running and taking Advil for the pain. And the callus got worse and worse and worse to the point where I had to change the way I ran so that I wouldn't feel the pain. And the cumulated effect of that it went from a callus on my foot, trickled all the way up to my knee, and now I have bursitis in my knee. Pain accumulates if we don't handle it properly. All the Advil wasn't going to manage that pain. I needed lots of rest. I needed lots of healing. But the reality was I had a chance to address this pain before it became worse. And like many of us, I ignored it. I denied it. I got lazy. I didn't feel like doing it. I thought it would just go away. We all make the mistake of not addressing things, and it gets worse, not better. In your handouts, I have there for you Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. One who is often reproved yet remains stubborn will suddenly be broken beyond healing, which leads us to point number three. Unaddressed pain spreads to affect other areas. See, the unaddressed pain we experience emotionally or psychologically or spiritually will infect other areas of our life. How many of you know that a, a wounded heart can lead to an aggravated mind and then a tormented soul? That when we're hurt or disappointed or neglected or abandoned or not show love, it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with other people. How many of you know that the pain you experience initially doesn't stay in that same pain state over the course of time? That anger can lead to sadness, which can lead to shame. That it started out as anger, but it grew and metastasized, and it changed over time. 
You know, when I got the bursitis in my knee, little did I know it would also rob me of an opportunity. See, because my Philadelphia Eagles, to go back to them, they won the Super Bowl. And I've been waiting 43 years, since I'm 43 on Tuesday, I've been waiting 43 years for them to win the Super Bowl. And now I can't even go to the parade because I can't walk. How often has unchecked pain in our life robbed us of an opportunity that we didn't see coming, and only when it got there, we realized we couldn't do it, couldn't embrace it. God couldn't use us. I tried to get your attention because I knew an opportunity was coming to you, but you didn't want to listen. You just wanted to do like Pastor Jim and take Advil and self-medicate. Proverbs 19 verse 3 says, the foolishness of man undermines his way ruining everything he undertakes. Then his heart is resentful, and he rages against the Lord. Which is just the point number four. Everyone was taught how to deal with pain. All of us were. Now, some of us were taught the right way to deal with pain, and some of us were taught the wrong way. If anything, most of us were taught the wrong way to deal with pain. Here are some of the lessons. Maybe you learned these bad lessons. Like, when you're in pain, just stuff it Don't talk about it because nobody wants to hear your belly aching anyway. How about when pain comes, just do whatever you want to make yourself feel better and it will eventually go away. Uh, When pain comes, isolate yourself from family, from the world, so you have time to sulk and stew over it. When, When pain comes, don't go to the doctor and whatever you do, don't go get counseling. When pain happens in our family, we just give each other the silent treatment. And we know the pain has gone away because we start talking to one another. Or how about when I'm in pain, I lash out and say whatever I want, however I want, because I got to get it off my chest. We've all learned some really bad ways and bad lessons about how to dress and deal with pain. What we need to teach our children and my social work students, and Olivia was one of them, will already know this, what I'm about to tell you, is that kids need to learn and understand that when they're in pain, that, that someone will listen to them, someone will comfort them, and in doing so, they'll find relief from their pain. We call it the comfort question. When, you're in a, when you've been significantly distressed, did someone listen to you? Did someone touch you in an appropriate way? And because of them listening to you and touching you and being a part of that painful experience, you found relief from the pain. But oftentimes, that's not the families we grew up in. The families we grew up in, you don't talk about the pain. You don't address it. You can't have open and honest conversations. We just brush it under the rug until it eventually becomes a mountain that we're all tripping over. But nobody has the willingness or the guts or the opportunity or the wherewithal, the psychological, spiritual, emotional strength to address it. But you just need to know that God wants to, the very thing a parent does to a child is the very thing God does to us. That when we're in pain, God says, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to touch you in a way that's going to make it better, not worse. And in doing so, I'm going to help you find relief. Why? Because you need to be able to take that same experience and translate it over to future relationships. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 in your handout says, Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. And Deuteronomy 31, verse 8 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. When God says he won't leave you, it means he won't physically take his presence from you. 
And when I leave Stress Factory and go to see with my family, I'm going to physically leave your presence. And if I do well, hopefully, Pastor, you come invite me back. But if I don't do well, then I'm never going to be back in your presence. God doesn't ever physically leave your presence. And when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, to forsake you means to emotionally and psychologically abandon you. And God's saying, I'm never going to emotionally and psychologically abandon you, nor will I ever physically leave your presence. I don't care what you've done. I don't care the sin you've committed. I don't care how bad you're in pain. I don't care how much you're mad at me right now and how confused you are. I'm never, ever going to go away. And see, that is so different from our human experience because in our human experience with our relationships, people often leave. People don't stay. They don't stick around. When they see the worst of us, they back up and withdraw and maybe not connect with us anymore. But that's not, that's not what God does. Which leads us to point number five. That lasting relief from our pain comes when we surrender it to God. See, the world can offer a variety of therapeutic approaches to help us work through our pain. The world can offer us a variety of medications that can regulate the activity of our brains. And I'm in support of all of those therapeutic interventions, and I incorporate a lot of them. And I'm in support of medications when it's appropriate and when it's needed. But even the best counselors and the best medicines can't touch stuff in our soul that's uniquely reserved just for God. I often tell people who come to me and sit at my office and want to talk about the, the depths of their pain, and I tell them, listen, there's some stuff I just can't get to. There's some stuff that's just reserved only for God because he is your creator and sustainer, and he made you, and that's his purview. I can take you but so far, and he's going to have to take you the rest of the way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You ever think about that scripture? For how am I blessed because I'm mourning? See, the reason you're blessed when you're mourning is because when you're in pain, you take your pain to God. And in taking your pain to God, God always makes it better. He never makes it worse. So if you come to me for counseling, I actually might misdiagnose you. I actually might not understand the unique aspects of your life. I may not totally understand the totality of your experience, and I may, inter I may implement a therapeutic intervention that actually makes your pain worse, not better. I mean, you know people, they were prescribed psychotropic medications, and it made their pain worse, not better. They became more suicidal, more symptomatic. But the reality of God is that every time he touches your pain, he always makes it better. He never makes it worse. In fact, Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18 say, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those crushed in spirit. So, the, so, so a question on the floor for us is, if God's never going to leave me, if he's never going to forsake me, if he's always going to heal my pain, then why don't I just go to him in the first place? Because it would make perfect sense to just whenever I'm in difficulty, whenever I've been abused or hurt or neglected or abandoned or abused in some way, why not just go to God in the first place? Well, the reality is we live in this, this thing called the flesh, this human experience. And oftentimes we have three really unhealthy ways in which we address pain. And the first one is, is that we try to medicate it. If you're following along in the handout, that's the next point for you. The three illegitimate ways we try to address pain is, number one, we try to medicate it. See, we'll reach for anything that feels good that will satisfy this flesh. Because we'll medicate with food and drugs 
and alcohol and gambling and shopping and sex and pornography and a whole host of other vices too numerous to mention. We will self-medicate our pain, and, and the means by which we are using to medicate the pain is just a signal that we are desperately trying out for help. You know, King David had all kinds of pain. If you read King David's story in the Bible, he had a father who forgot about him when the prophet came in. He said, yeah, here's all my sons. Oh, yeah, totally forgot about David. He's out in the field. So father doesn't uh, forget about him. Saul turns against him and tries to kill him. He doesn't have any positive male role models in his life. And so how does David deal with his pain? He medicates it with women. He has numerous sexual relationships with women. The most famous one of them all, Bathsheba. He has an affair with Bathsheba. See, people who self-medicate their pain, they have this sense of entitlement. Like, I deserve this. I'm owed this. Nobody's taking care of me, so I got to take care of myself. Strong sense of entitlement. I got to do what I got to do to take care of me. And in fact, this is exactly how I would medicate my pain. For many years, I would self-medicate. You all know my affinity for Advil, but before Advil came along, you know, I was, uh, because of the divorce of my parents and because my mom wasn't around, and as a young boy growing up, and longing for the healthy relationship with another woman and not having it because mom's not around, you find it in illegitimate sources. So I had numerous girlfriends. The numerous girlfriends led to the introduction to pornography. And that eventually led to parties and marijuana and alcohol and those types of drugs. And I would self-medicate my pain. Because whenever I got hurt, whenever I felt abandoned, neglected, not supported, left out, the marijuana was always there. The alcohol was always there. The porn was never there. It never said no. It was always there. So I would self-medicate my pain, hoping that it would go away. But the reality is, the more I self-medicated, the worse the pain got. So we self-medicate. We medicate the pain. Second thing is that we motivate the pain, which would be point number two for you. We motivate the pain. We like to keep ourselves busy. We want to constantly be doing something, constantly going somewhere, always working. King David's son, King Solomon, he liked to motivate his pain. He was in pain because he's the son of David and Bathsheba. He had a brother. He had to kill his brother to become king. And the way Solomon dealt with his pain is that he never stopped. Accomplishment after accomplishment, woman after woman, financial success after another financial success. See, people who motivate their pain, they don't ever want to stop because if I ever stop, if I ever stop working and moving and going, the demons will show up and I can't handle them. If I ever stop moving, if I ever stop working, if 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 I don't stop, they won't come and get me. But as long as I keep working, that I can keep my pain at bay. Because the moment I stop, that pain's going to rear its ugly head. So I'll work more than I'm supposed to. I'll keep the TV on, social media on, and be texting people all at the same time. Because I just want to keep moving. Keep being driven. What also motivates us, though, is our fear of failure. We're driven because we don't want to fail because to fail is another painful experience. So we're motivated to work constantly, stay in motion. You know, people who work all the time, their bodies eventually break down. They develop ulcers and kidney stones, high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes. 
Some of you know people that they worked so hard to avoid their pain that eventually they had to be on bed rest. And God's like, okay, now I have your attention. Since you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything. Can I now touch that area? Because you can't run now. Can't go to another appointment. Can't go play another round of golf. Can't go do another social media post. You got nothing other than sit here with me right now. I don't know about you. I'd rather deal with it now standing upright than being laid out in my bed because I rocked my body too much to the degree that I just kept moving and never addressing the pain. The third way is that we meditate on it. We meditate on it. So we medicate it, we motivate it, and we meditate on it. See, folks who meditate on their pain, they like to stew over their pain. They like to, to brood over their pains and hurts. It's always in their mind. It's constantly running like a television set that won't go off. Their minds never stop. And people who meditate their pain, they like to get quiet and isolate themselves away and don't want to be around friends and family, and they just want to stew on it. Now, if you just saw them in public, you wouldn't know that there was a problem until you asked them one thing about that pain or one thing about that situation, and it all comes up to the surface, and they talk for three or four hours about that one painful thing that happened 15 years ago because they've been stewing on it and thinking about it over and over and over again. Meditators, we, we like to stew on cynicism and negativity and unbelief and bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred and maybe the worst of all, a victim mentality. David's other son, remember David's other son, Absalom? Absalom was a meditator. Remember Absalom's sister, Tamar? She was raped by her brother, Amnon. And David did nothing for two years. And after two years of stewing on this thing, Absalom goes and he kills Amnon. And he has to flee the country. And for three more years, David does nothing. Then Absalom finally comes back to Jerusalem, and for two more years, David doesn't speak to him. So after seven years of stewing on this pain of my sister being raped and dad doing nothing about it and dad disowning me, what happens to Absalom? He tries to what? Kill David. He meditated on it. For your notes, medicators cause pain because of their addictions. Medicators cause pain because of their addictions. Number two, motivators cause pain because of their avoidance. And number three, meditators cause pain because of their attacks on others. So medicators cause pain because of their addictions, and motivators cause pain because of their avoidance, and meditators cause pain because of their attacks on other people. So how do we find relief from this pain? How do we handle pain properly? Well, that leads me to my final three points. And hopefully I'm doing well in time, Pastor Yukon. Point number one, and that is cultivation crushes cravings. Cultivation crushes cravings. See, this flesh, this body that we live in, it craves to medicate our pain, to motivate our pain, and to meditate on our pain. This flesh craves everything that this world has to offer. But did you know in the world of AA and NA, when somebody finally comes to the point where they want to address their addiction and they come to a meeting, the sponsor or the people in the group will tell them, you got to do 90 meetings in 90 days. 
So you have to cultivate a new mentality, a new habit, a new way of living, because if you don't, you'll return back to your addictive behaviors. Even the neuroscience, the research shows us that when we make intentional efforts to cultivate the way we believe and cultivate a new way of learning, a new way of responding, a new way of living, it actually changes the brain chemistry. It rewires the brain so it can function differently when the future situations appear themselves that just look like the past. Sometimes we're, our brains have been so wired to respond on a default of pain or medication or meditating on it, motivating it, that we didn't rewire our brain to the point when that thing comes again, I respond differently. So the cultivation has to crush our cravings. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, and your note says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, the daily cultivation of our soul through prayer and reading the Bible and just being quiet enough for God to speak to us. How many of you have, you've had those drive-by devotional settings? Sit down, read a verse. Okay, God, this is what I need. Okay, good. I'm out. I got things to do. It's just a drive-by. Sometimes we do that because we're busy. Sometimes we do that because I don't really want to sit in your presence. Because if I sit in your presence, you're really going to tell me something I don't want to deal with and address. So I'll just keep busy. I'll even stay busy with God. But the cultivation process means that we have to be honest. Right? We cannot hide the way Adam and Eve hid in the garden. We can't hide that way. Can't hide from the very, we're hiding from God. The very one who can heal me is the one I'm hiding from. And listen, the devil, the devil wants you to hide. He wants you to keep it in darkness. That's exactly where he wants. He wants you to cover it up and keep it quiet and don't let anybody see it and just keep it in that dark area. Do you know why? Because Satan is, he is the ruler and the dominion. He has power in darkness. And as long as you keep it in darkness, you're under his power. The moment you bring your pain to the light, the light is where God lives. And now you've, you've transferred the authority and the dominion and the power from Satan over to God the moment I bring it into the light. Why do we find such healing in our relationships when we finally bring things to the light? We finally have open and honest conversations. We finally let our guard down, let people into our world. Why? Because I took it out of Satan's domain. I put it right into the hands of God where you live because you live in the light. I'm going to allow you to heal it, allow you to work through it. Because as long as you keep in the darkness, Satan's going to be like, listen, listen, listen. I know you're hurting. But just walk through this door right over here. And I guarantee you, you'll feel better. You know what the door is. It will always be here for you. I'll never close it. You may not want to do it. Now it's okay. But later on tonight, when you're thinking about it, the door will always be open. And then we walk through that door and we, we gratify this flesh. And he turns around and looks at us and says, you despicable nasty, unworthy person. How can God ever possibly love you again? You got me on both ends. You tricked me to walk through the door, and then when I walked through the door, you heaped shame and embarrassment on top of me, only to further keep my pain within me. 
Satan wants to put shame and embarrassment on top of you so that you keep it in darkness because he wants you to believe you're not worthy. You've made too many mistakes. You screwed up too many times. I, I know you told God, I'll never do that again, but you just did it Thursday night. And Satan's like, see, God can't use you. And God wants you to know that he loves you with an everlasting love. That he'll what? Never leave us nor forsake us. And regardless of how many times we've screwed up, no matter how many times we have messed up, no matter how many times we have not handled this pain properly, God's always like, I'm here, son. I'm here, daughter. Those of you who are children who truly love your children, your children could do the worst things possible, but you always love them. You You tell them, I may not like your behavior, but I will always love you. And you can always come to me. That's the same thing God says to us. But it's so hard to hear that when Satan is lumping shame and embarrassment and guilt on top of us. we got to bring our pain into the light where God rules because he wants to lift our shame. He wants to lift our fear. He may not like our behavior, but he always, always loves us. Which leaves us to point number two, that healing isn't done in isolation. Point number two, healing isn't done in isolation. Listen, when I got bursitis in my left knee, I just couldn't sit at the house and do nothing. You know, I could have sat at the house and sat on my couch and prayed until I called fire down from heaven. And bursitis would still be in my knee. In fact, it would have just got worse. No, see, I had to get my tail up and I had to go to the doctor. And then the doctor had to write me a script. First, he had to diagnose my problem. And then he had to write me a script for a medicine that I needed to address the pain. So then I had to get my gun. I had to drive all the way to Walgreens. And I had to talk to a pharmacist who got medications from a company very far away that I've never seen before who had enough skill and knowledge to create the medicine that I needed for my pain. The point I'm trying to make is that healing isn't done in isolation. Healing is an interconnected process. That I needed the doctor and the physician, I mean the doctor and the pharmacist and the company to make it. I needed all these people in my life in order for that bursitis to go away, in order for me to find healing. And so often we try to find healing in isolation. I can do it on my own, by myself, don't need nobody, don't want to talk to nobody. And the more strong-willed and independent you are, the more you're built like that. Or... Every single time I have tried to reach out and connect to somebody else, it always ends badly, and they always leave. They never, they never come. They never stay. So I don't want, I can't risk reaching out one more time for them to abandon me because it's just going to be too painful. So I'll just lone wolf it. I'll just go by myself. And God's saying, no, it's an interconnected process. We are the body of Christ that we ought to love and nurture one another, right? Ephesians says that we ought to take up our own cross and we ought to bear the burdens of one another. What that means is take up your own cross. It means take up your knapsack. Be responsible for what is in your life right now, and the burdens are the heavy stuff, the hard stuff, like divorce and embarrassment or abuse and trauma and difficulty and molestation. we got to carry those burdens while also carrying my own personal responsibility, Sometimes we take on other people's knapsacks because we don't want to deal with our own. And we take, on bur- we take on burdens that were never meant to be our own. But healing isn't done in isolation. And I'd say that we got to take personal responsibility for our life. There's things that have happened to you that are legit and true, no doubt about it. But then there's what we do with the fact that it was done to us. What's the personal responsibility that we're going to take? 
Now, I could blame other people, but that might necessarily solve my problem. Now, what happened to you explains where you are, but it cannot justify you staying there. What happened to you and why you're at, the re- this place you're at right now, it's an explanation, but it can't be a justification to stay there. Because God loves you too much and he's got too much for you to do for you to justify staying there. Right? You're not going to justify your bad behavior by pointing to the bad behavior of other people. It's not the way it works. And I want to draw your attention to a really important point. And that is that God, we are often asking God to heal us. We're often asking for miracles to take place in my mind or my heart or my soul or my relationships. And we're asking God to do it. And oftentimes, God, the miracle that you're praying for, God doesn't always put it in your hand. He often just puts it within your reach. And there's a unique difference. See, God could put it in your hand because he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And every once in a while, he does put it in our hand. But far often than not, he puts it within our reach. Because he says, look, I've given you the power to get wealth. I've given you the ability to handle whatever comes along your way. And I need you to demonstrate faith that you believe my word is true and reach for whatever it is you need to heal you. So that may mean we have to reach for therapy. We have to reach for an accountability partner. We have to reach for medication. We have to reach for more prayer. We have to reach for more Bible study. We have to reach to be more connected to one another here at Ethnos. i got to reach for it because in my reaching I find my healing. But we come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday expecting God just to put it in my hand. He's like, no, I'm not going to put it in your hand. I'm going to put it within your reach because I need you to demonstrate faith to believe me. And once you do it, it starts a process of healing and recovery beyond which you cannot imagine or believe. Your handout says Proverbs 28.3, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 24, 12, 24, diligent hand to rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Proverbs 13, 18, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Healing isn't done in isolation. And point number three, we got to move forward with forgiveness. Got to move forward with forgiveness. Now, forgiveness isn't an easy thing to do. It's hard. It's difficult. But that's often why we have to rely on the fruit of the Spirit to help us to love and to be gracious and to have self-control and to have goodness and kindness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It ain't the fruit of Jim because there's nothing good within me. It's the fruit of the Spirit. I, gotta, I have to place myself under the authority of God and allow Him to lead me and guide me. Do you ever think about this? Why do you have eyes in the front of your head and not the back of your head? See, God put eyes in the front of your head because he wants you to see where you're going. He doesn't want you to constantly be looking about where you've been. And I'm, and when my eyes the, I'm always looking back. I'm always holding on to the past pain, the past difficulty, the past hurt, the past wound, the past problem. And God's like, I didn't put eyes in the back of your head to keep looking backwards. I put eyes in the front of your head to look forward, which is why you have Philippians 3.13. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is lying ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me and heavenly in Christ Jesus. God's going to help you to forgive. He will help you. It is a process. It is a journey. It might take 10 years, but as long as you're on the journey, that's what's most important. It's when we say, I'm never going to forgive, ever. Done deal. Then God's like, ah, I think I have a problem with that. 
and then you and me are going to have to wrestle with that choice. Let me fast forward to just a few years ago. No, I shouldn't say a few years ago. That's just before I was even married. I've been married for 16 years, May 31st. Before I was married, I was at the church, and there was a famous preacher in the African-American settings. And many, some of you know him because of the songs, Pastor Donnie McClurk, and he was at Abundant Life. He came to Abundant, and he offered, uh, gave, a great, gave a great sermon, and then he had, te- he had a uh, call for the altar. And he said, I want everybody who's struggling with sexual sin and pornography and all that other stuff to come to this altar. Now, I'm sitting way over here on the, high and lifted up in the minister section as Minister Jim. But I knew everything in me had to get to that altar. So I made my way to the altar. And it's like this sea of humanity. Um, hundreds of people felt like he was at the altar. And Pastor McGorkin is, is talking, and he singles me out. Maybe because I was the only white face in the crowd. That's probably why he singled me out. There's all these black people and this one, this one little white guy. But he singles me out, and he just simply says, you're anointed, you're anointed, you're anointed. And that's all I needed to hear to break that, to break that hold within me. And in that moment, I made an intentional effort to store that into my long-term memory. Because the neuroscience tells us that we are really good at learning from bad experiences, but we're horrible at learning from good ones. And so when that good experience came, I had to bury it into my long-term memory because I needed it to shift the way I think moving forward because I knew later that night the porn was going to come calling. I knew two weeks from now that little girl was going to call my phone number. And I needed to constantly be reminded that I am anointed, I'm anointed, I'm anointed. And the very thing that Pastor Burkarkin did for me, I want to do for all of you. I'm not going to ask you to stand, nor would I ask you to come here, but I want you to think about the words that I'm about to say to you. And I need you to plant this into long-term memory so that it literally changes the neurochemistry in your brain so that God can use you to make better choices. Y'all with me? So I need you to hear these words as God speaking to you. And I'll simply start with what he told me, and that is you're anointed. You're anointed. You're anointed. Bury this into your soul. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. You were worth dying for. Bury that into your soul. You were worth dying for. You were worth dying for. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence. We thank you for all that we have heard, all that we have experienced. And I pray, God, for these, your people, your sons and your daughters. You know the difficulty. You know the pain. You know the things that have been awakened in their heart and their mind because of what you wanted to say to them today. So I pray, God, that your ministering angels would touch their heart touch their mind, touch their spirit, touch their soul. God, I pray that they would have the confidence to open up their hearts and give you their pain so that you can heal it, God. I pray, God, that the people who have been holding on to pain and trying to keep it in secret and not want anybody to see it, I pray they first start with showing it to you. And I pray, God, that you would touch their pain in such a way that you'll make it better, not worse. 
I pray, God, you send angels to minister to them on their behalf. God, we speak and declare that every demon and devil that's been assigned to destroy their life will have to be pushed back into dry places. And every angel that's been assigned to their life, God, I pray that that angel would go to war on their behalf in the spiritual realm where they cannot see. And that they would fight on these people's behalf to such a degree that they'll have peace in their life, peace in their homes, peace in their mind, peace in their car, peace on their jobs, peace in their homes, peace when they lie down. God, I pray for these people. They won't have any more sleep this night. No more tossing and turning. No more, no more of meditating on the pain. No more self-medicating the pain. No more motivating the pain. But God, I pray that you find, they'd find healing in you. And then God, I pray that that healing then transfers over to this community. That an ethnos would be a safe place where healing can take place. Where reconciliation can occur. Relationships can be established. That alter the trajectory of people's lives to such a degree that you use them for your glory, for your honor, for your purpose. It's in the name that's above every name. Jesus' name that we pray. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. Thanks again for joining us for today's conversation. For more information about Ethnos New Brunswick, please visit us at ethnosmb.com.